We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. Well, the research tells us um, that some 12% of incarcerated people um, should identify somewhere in the spectrum of the LGBT. Um, but if we look at participation in LGBT programs at Ravenhall, they don't reflect that, those statistics. So one could really infer, and certainly in my experience, I could really infer that there are people who identify who haven't come out, who haven't you know, told their family and friends. And I think the rationale for that is... Well, prison isn't really the the perfect place to be vulnerable. It's not. You don't think prison and vulnerability, they don't really go hand in hand. Um, And I think also the process of socialisation of this hyper-masculine place where things like violence is so um, intrinsically accepted by the men, the use of drugs is so intrinsically um, accepted by the men, it's very difficult to then come out as being a gay person or a bi person or a trans person in an environment that really looks at masculinity as a superior kind. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about, is giving out of sight. You're, you're going you're gonna to do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm going to do when I get out. And all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of that mm. goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with Mick Cronin. Today on the show, we sit down with a young man at the time of the recording uh, was serving a sentence in Ravenhall. His name's Noah, and we reflect on his journey and experience as a young man who identifies as gay uh, and the challenges that that comes with when you're put into a prison setting. Noah's ability to critically assess his situation and reflect without judgment makes this conversation tremendously insightful, and both Mick and myself uh, learned so much. Without further ado, let's get into it. First off, uh, thanks for sitting down with us, Noah, today. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. And we got you back for a reason because <laughs> you're a great advocate for people in prison at the moment. Um, and one of those groups that you advocate for is the LGBT community yes. uh, here in the prison. Can I ask you, how do you represent the community here in, in the prison? I think uh, because a community um, in prisons or outside the community, um, you know, the wider community, is so you know, marginalised at times. Um, representing them doesn't really mean kind of taking on their views or, 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 you know, but simply advocating for, I guess, nuances that the general population might not be aware of. Um, and, you know, as this kind of journey of educating people about LGBT communities and, and the perspectives that they provide to the wider community, I think it's just really about advocating for that and championing that, you know, and educating people that uh, if we listen to the various smaller minority groups in our communities, in our, in our, in our social groups, um, that we'll have more cohesive, um, safer, happier um, um, social organisations out there. And I think in prison, that's kind of even more amplified um, because... <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
I can see you, but in, in prison, um, that's even more amplified because, you know, when you look at sort of the demographic of, of incarcerated men and women, for that matter, um, they're from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. They, have, they haven't been exposed to these kind of communities. They haven't attained the education to understand some of the nuances and differences that the LGBT communities provide. Um, and so here, it's really just about educating them. And I think you can represent the community by answering the questions that men ask. It might be ridiculous questions, you know, things that you, you don't imagine, but you answer it anyway to the best of your ability. Mm. Um, in the hope that um, they walk away with a, a better comprehension of what LGBT community means to me um, and hopefully to them. Yeah. That's really interesting. And um, do you mind me asking, um, how do you identify? Uh, I'm gay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a, a very diff, it's a, I'm very open about it in prison yeah. now, but when I first came here, it wasn't. And that's, that's, a really, that's, that's something that we want to um, speak to you about or, or find out more about in that sense. Um, if we step it back then, before we get to that point, like how, you know, the question that probably listeners were like, how, how did you end up in, in prison? Like, where did your life, like, can you give us a bit of a background? Of your, course. Like, how you grew up, your background, like, yeah. you know, um, you don't have to go back as far as you want, or yeah. whatever, but your, your upbringing and then how it led, how you led to be, you know, sitting in front of me and Mac <laughs> in, uh, in prison and on this podcast. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I've had a lot of time, I've been, you know, incarcerated for some period now, and I think in that time you think and reflect how did I end up here you know it's not you don't wake up in the morning as a child thinking I'm going to go to prison one day it's not an aspiration anyone kind of thinks about but certainly for me when I reflect back I think um, being uncomfortable you know in my own skin being a gay person um, for predominantly Catholic Christian upbringing it was a very kind of um, different experience and not that my parents or my family members were against gay people or the LGBT community as a whole but there was certainly this air of um, we don't want you to be that because we know what that carries with it you know this sort of stigma that comes with being an LGBT person and I think I tried to um, artificialize myself and purvey a certain um, a, a different personality um, and that, of course, required money <laughs> um, and money that I didn't have. Um, and I think from that point, you know, that kind of sense of financial ability or fi financial independence allowed me to express my own self. Um, but I gained that illicitly, and I guess that's why I'm here. But I think, you know, my offending or why I'm in prison, I can really relate to the discomfort or that stigma that's associated with being an LGBT person. That's not to say that it's not my, f you know, that's not my fault, but certainly... Um, the social stigma and the social expectation that's inherent with it has contributed to that feeling of I need to portray a certain type of individual yeah. to feel accepted. Yeah. And I think that's what most LGBT people want is just acceptance. Yeah, that's, it's super interesting. You were wanting to live a lifestyle. You wanted to, you, you know, you wanted to be accepted, but you wanted to live a lifestyle that showed in some way that you're part of that. Um, but to do that, you, you didn't have the means to do it. It's really, really interesting. Um, so now then, I'm also interested in when you are facing prison time. So when you're, you're sentenced um, or, you're, or you're brought into remand and sorry, you're, you're, you're in prison, what goes through your head? Did, did, did any, at any stage, did you feel that being a gay man going into a prison environment which I'm taking you didn't know much about yes yeah I'm absolutely. hoping you go, yeah I'm gathering you had no idea about it um because no one really goes and studies prison just just in case uh, <laughs> you go there yeah, just in, I better study that just in case on the off chance I end up there um 
how did you did you have some genuine um you know fears for yourself and and how this would how how you would be able to um go into prison and and, and how your prison time would be absolutely i think even when you're not in prison in in the community when you meet a, a new bunch of people um you already feel ambivalent to kind of that, that's that's not the first thing you say you know it's it's certainly probably one of the last things you say um I'd like to say that it's one of the last things you say because it's unimportant, but really it's one of the last things you say because it's so personal and you don't know how people are going to react. You can't control that, that reaction. Um, in a place like prison where you, know, you, you see in movies and televisions and the media that it's this really bad <laughs> place with you know, violence all mm. around um, that's so hyper-masculine, you certainly, that, that's the last thing you want to do is come out um, as a gay person. I didn't do that until I came to Ravenhall. Um, but the expectations that you have as being a gay person in prison without any experience of being in prison or having studied, you know, what, what prison is like, it's all very negative. You know, you, you feel that you're going to be threatened. You feel that your safety is going to be at risk. But once you come into prison, in the first few weeks of coming into prison, people didn't really kind of care. They didn't really ask. Um, and when I did eventually tell them, um, they were very supportive, and if anything, quite um, interested in knowing more about it. Yeah, curious. And curious, yeah. and I think that curiosity, you can you know, exploit that in a positive way to answer their questions mm. so that they can walk out of here thinking, oh, wow, you know, I, I just had that interaction with a gay person in prison, and with the hope that they, when they leave the prison experience, they can then take that on board with them and not see gay people or, LGBT com- or the LGBT community as a whole as this polarised place thought in your mind that you that's not so tangible and realistic um and for them this is a, a realistic first-hand experience and um for a lot of them it's probably the first time they have really asked these questions or yeah. interacted with an lgbt person and so you know and as you know um the first experience you have with someone or with something is is really impressionable and so i think for me you know it wasn't just kind of there was a sense of duty to kind of answer these questions i mean if if people in the community are, are, are struggling i um, mean me coming into prison there's already this polarized idea of being a, a, a lgbt person in some respect i felt the sense of duty to answer their questions and and be an advocate um for the community it's wonderful um i'm curious as well in regards to um it's like you're coming out for a second time, but you're coming out in prison. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yes. Now, I'm not sure if people are coming out for the first time when they're in prison <laughs> as well, meaning that, um, meaning that they obviously, have, you know, they're obviously in the community, you know, they're comfortable in, in, in you know, come out and everyone knows, Absolutely. you know, homosexuality and where they, they, where they sit with that. But in prison, did you find that there, um, there were some people that were, you know, still very guarded in that and their identity? Um, mm. Or did you did you and did you feel that's the first part of it and the second part? Did you feel by having conversations with someone like yourself and, and other people that that helps them to then go? You know, I don't have anything to be concerned about. I I should be who I am, mm. whether it's in prison or whether it's in the community. It's the same. Mm. Well, the research tells us um, that some twelve percent of incarcerated people um, should identify somewhere in the spectrum of the LGBT. Mm. Um, but if we look at participation in LGBT programs at Ravenhall, they don't reflect that, those statistics. So one could really infer, and certainly in my experience, I could really infer that there are people who identify who haven't come out, who haven't you know, told their family and friends. 
And I think the rationale for that is, well, prison isn't really the, the perfect place to be vulnerable. It's not. You don't think prison and vulnerability, they don't really go hand in hand. Um, and I think also the process of socialisation of this hyper-masculine place where things like violence is so um, intrinsically accepted by the men, the use of drugs is so intrinsically um, accepted by the men, it's very difficult to then come out as being a gay person or a bi person or a trans person in an environment that really looks at masculinity as a superior kind. And I think... Um, and that, that's not to say that gay people are not masculine, but certainly the idea in people's head of you as a gay person, you're not masculine. Um, and with that stereotype, it's very difficult for people to come out um, and express their true um, sexual identity. In saying that, um, there, are, there have been people <coughs> that's pardon me, that have attended the support group here at um, Ravenhall that are not out of their family, but um, have come out in prison because they have noticed or they have sort of realised that there's this opportunity to explore what it's like coming out. Because you're kind of in this impermeable microcosm society where you can kind of experiment and see, well, how is how, how are people going to react here? You know, Is that going to emulate when I get out of prison? And so there have been a number of people that have come out in prison where their families don't know. And I think, in my experience, it's been quite a refreshing experience for them. They feel that, um, wow, you know, people aren't as, as judgmental. People are actually really accepting. And if anything, the world's moved on so much. But in saying that, being a gay person out in the prison community, you definitely get those slurs. You get sort of the, the commentary on the side. And I think that can really be um, reduced down or essentialized um, to them not really understanding or having had no interaction with the LGBT community. And to me, it's just sort of a, a behaviour of, of ignorance, of not really understanding. Uh, but, you know, I've always overcome that by approaching them and having this conversation that we're having right now yeah. about LGBT people. And most of the time, and in my experience, all the time, um, they walk out of that conversation feeling a bit more comfortable approaching me or talking to me. Yeah. And that's such a great experience. And I think one that I feel very proud to have been able to achieve in saying that not everybody can do it. I think you need a lot of balls to, to go into that and, you know, talk to a large man who is very anti-gay um, or has been very anti-gay in the past. But I think if you come into that conversation with an open mind and, and you see an opportunity for them to come into that conversation with an open mind, I think you can really get a lot out of it. Yeah. Is that something you have to wait for? like the slurs and everything like that to initiate that conversation? Or is it something that you advocate uh, and there's a space where you could hold dialogue yeah. and let them come to you? Um, for me, obviously, there's, there's no formal space where you can kind of ask these questions. And for me, it's merely in my interactions with the men. But I think I like to wait for them to ask these questions or make those slurs because I like to think, and certainly in my experience, that they're ready to have that conversation. I don't think it's right for me to then go and advocate, you know, like a, like a, a very religious person advocating for religion. I, I, I don't think that's going to be the best way for them to kind of accept it and be open to it. When they make those slurs and ask those questions, in my opinion, that's when they're most open to having this conversation. Um, and it's interesting because... I find this fascinating because what you're saying is it, it can be about religion, it can be about everything else. Probably the difference a little bit is if you were in the community and you had these laws, that conversation fades. They, they walk away. Absolutely. And you walk the other way. That can't happen here. 
Absolutely. So that's where I feel it's really powerful what you're just saying because you're right. In a way, they're, they, you know, they might be saying something, but it's because it's coming from a place where it's probably just not understanding or, or maybe wanting to understand more, but yeah. not knowing how to approach that conversation. Mm. So relating back to what you know is, is how you, you know, your dialogue of how you say it, which, is, which is, can be hurtful, can be whatever, yeah. but leads to something that becomes quite fruitful. Yes, and beautiful yeah. in the sense of a, conver- of a conversation where it's educational and you mm. both walk away then again. Yeah. But a different way of doing it. And then you come back again, there's, there's not, that's, that's kind of mitigated or eliminated. Absolutely. I mean, when you think of prison, right, or with, if you think of the community and the outside, you become friends or you become acquaintances with people who are like-minded, you know, have similar interests to you. So already you're forming those, those bonds based on, on similar interests. But in prison, you're forced in this environment where you don't, you don't necessarily get along. You have nothing in common, but you have to you have to coexist and you have to, in some level, function as a community. Um, and that's when these opportunities come about. But in the community, that doesn't happen. But here it does. And I think that's probably why this advocacy of the LGBT community in prison can be so powerful that might not necessarily translate to the outer community. So it's, in fair, in fair, it's fair to say... That how we how you go about it now and how we're advocating now and how the conversation you're having now. There's a lot to be learned from in prison yeah. <laughs> that can be transferred into the community. Absolutely. And I'm sure like GEO and, and corrections and, and everyone else will be behind this. Absolutely. You know? and, and it's something that probably people listening to this would not understand or would not even grasp in their head. Yeah. That actually there's positive work being done within prison walls that could, we could learn about in the community. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that because it's always the other way around. It's always the other way around. You Absolutely. Know, people, people think that you've got to take the standards from the community and, and bring put it, it back into, into prison. prison. Yeah. But we're taking the standards from prison and putting it into the community. Yeah. And I think that's when you, you can really see um, prison become this space of learning for the broader community. But people don't necessarily come to prison to learn. Um, in fact, uh, most people, most policymakers, um, go into prison to to teach, but they don't come here to learn. And I think, you know, if people spend a bit more time investigating what prison can can offer and what p- the people in prison can offer, I really do think that would have a um, we can learn so much out of it, just like what we discussed today. Yeah. Um, and I think you know that, that that's something that we should take forward in the future, not just within the LGBT community, but certainly within broader social issues that yeah. surrounding um, yeah. Stick with us, we'll be back after this short ad. Mac, what do you want? Mick, this is your time. Give a shout out for the sponsors. Mate, I told you, we don't have any sponsors. Stop bringing me this time, mate. I'm making dinner. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. And that leads us into the next question. What does uh, the prison offer? Um, well, to put it into the, a specific LGBT lens, for me, I think the prison can really offer that in some regard, there's so much conflict out there, you know, in the world of, of different opposing ideologies about culture, about sexuality and gender. But in prison, they all, people are able to coexist. They might not agree on something. They might not necessarily have shared the same interests or shared the same views, but certainly, um, 
you're allowed to, you're able to coexist with people with opposing views, with opposing ideologies, with opposing perspectives on life. And through that, I actually feel like I've learned a lot out of, out of different people through their lived experiences. And I think that's one thing that we don't do on the outside. We don't look back beside us, you know, ahead of us to see what they're doing and learning from that experience. We tend to be very introspective on the outside to see ourselves in our journey, but we don't tend to look externally at what's happened with other people, what other people are doing. Um, and I think because we're so stuck in our sort of small social circles, we're so infatuated by that, you know, by our friends, by our families, that we don't look at the broader sort of unit of, of community. But here, you don't have your friends or your family to rely on. You have the broader community to rely on. And I think that's a really great lesson that we can learn from. And I think that, for me, came from being part of the LGBT community in prison. Um, I also think that social acceptance... <clears throat> pardon me, of LGBT communities can come from different ways. We imagine social acceptance as, um, <clears throat> pardon me, as people accepting or tolerating the LGBT community. But we don't necessarily lo look at it as coexisting. You know, we can't convince everybody to accept the cultures that are inherent within the LGBT community. But for me, social acceptance can also come from just coexisting. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to kind of agree on every single aspect of life, of every as single aspect of culture. But I think that's one thing that I learned in prison, that you can still accept someone, you might not agree with them, but you just coexist. And I think we don't do that enough. We try to kind of convert everybody in the community for whatever our cause might be. See, and, and we've heard that before with um, different cultures in the same way about that coexisting. Yeah. And I think, again, it's the myth out there that, you know, everyone is segregated and everyone is in their little cliques and all that. Certainly people have, you know, um, they, they are drawn to other people. And, yes. and, I, and I'm sure that will be with LGBT yes. uh, as well. But, um, but I think it's that coexistence in what you're saying is, is super important for people to understand. And, and that's yes. what I really um, learn a lot from. In, in, in Ravenhall here, in the prison, and, and in how GEO go about it and, and, and how the state are looking at going about it is in regards to that, you know, they're, they're putting, they're giving you a platform, they're giving you, um, you know, an opportunity um, to come together, but also to educate, but also learn and coexist in the right way yeah. and not, not really have it as you're over here and you're over there. How do we how do we how do we coexist? How do we educate and how do we teach people in here? Absolutely. And as, as I keep saying, like that doesn't exist so much in the community. It no. Does, it, 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 we try. We probably think we like to think we do, but we we're, <laughs> no, we're so far apart. Like yes. from it in some ways. So, um, tell me a little bit more about. Um, you mentioned with uh, with GEO as well with the LGBT. Um, like. Do you have, do you have a, like, is it um, a kind of a, a, you come together with a group, there's, yeah. you know, and anyone can come in at any stage. Yeah. Um, how does that, how does it work? Like, is it weekly? Every, is it, is it like yeah. every day or whatever? I'm really keen to, to, yeah. to break that down a bit. So it's, it's a monthly support group, right? Um, it's run by an LGBT staff member um, who also works in the rehabilitation and reintegration team here at Ravenhall. And he's fantastic. Um, but we meet once a month and People can come and go as they like. You know, they're not forced to go. It's voluntary. But it's a really great opportunity to support each other, um, just like other minority groups in the community. Here we're able to support each other, have conversations, bring up our own different problems that have arise from being in prison, and collectively try and create suggestions and solutions to kind of solving those personal problems we're going through. And I think you can't necessarily get that with... Um, other members of society because they don't really understand what it's like to be an LGBT person. But having a person who is an LGBT person have 
that conversation with you, you're able to share those ideas. And through that kind of collaboration, um, you feel and you walk out of that session, that, that support group experience, feeling a bit more comfortable that someone out there is thinking about you, that someone out there has your back. And certainly that, um, you know, makes me feel, feel very secured and very safe in a community like Gravenhall. Um, there's obviously a lot more we can do in saying that. But what we're thinking of doing and what's going to be happening in the future, just like everything else, COVID has sort of put a stop to our future plans. But one of the things that we're going to look at in the future is kind of emulating that support group in the community post-release. Um, we know through research that the LGBT communities are incarcerated disproportionately, they face um, homelessness disproportionately, they face drug and alcohol problems at rates higher than those in the heterosexual setting. And so certainly there's a space here for growth that needs to be addressed. Um, and we'd love to emulate that outside. Um, it's already hard from what people tell me, getting out of prison, it's very difficult. But imagine getting out of prison as an LGBT person, where your family may not have, might not accept you, you may not have a home to go to. Um, it's even more complicated when you're a transgender person where it's hard for you to get a job. It's hard for you to enter the you know, legitimate economy. Um, and so there's a lot of problems here, but there's not a lot of services because there's not, this, this, this kind of conversation, this discourse hasn't really been attracted by politicians, governments. And it's only recently really that our society has accepted it. And so it's going to take some time to kind of get this social support and social services that come along with it. Um, but as I said, this is an experience right here that the community is learning from prison. Um, and I hope that you know, we're able to expand on that in the future. You've just articulated that so well. Like, and you make so much, it makes so much sense. It sounds very simple <laughs> yeah. in some ways as well in the way you do it, but it's such a gap in what you said. Absolutely. And the layers and the layers that are in front of the LGBT um, community coming from a prison, from a person coming from prison, as you say, if they are identifying as trans, like just the different layers that that puts Absolutely. on. Absolutely. To being able to actually reintegrate and go back into community and have a, have a good chance. Of surviving mm. at the That's right. prison, yeah. That's exactly right. And you kind of touched on it before with people coming into prison and then kind of coming out yeah. while they're in here. Yeah. Um, I guess they wouldn't have the pressure of family and friends if that was pressure to them. Yeah. Uh, and they feel much safer. So, and that sounds really important as well. Yes. Would you say if... Is there a connection... I know you've done the research and all this sort of stuff. So <laughs> yes. is it, would there be a connection with risk-taking behaviour and holding in something like that? Absolutely. I mean, I think when we look at risk-taking behaviour and how it manifests in terms of our behaviour um, or our actions, you know, that, that, that looks like drug-taking, for example, or um, high levels of alcohol consumption or domestic family violence, that these are sort of, I guess, suppressive mechanisms or coping mechanisms, if you want to call it that, that hide that internal insecurity that people have. Um, and certainly a great example of this is, you know, in the 70s and 80s where the LGBT community was really pushed aside and marginalised. People went to bars and clubs. That was their main place just to feel safe. But bars and clubs aren't exactly the safest or most healthiest place for you to develop connections. You know, it's you take drugs, drink alcohol. And as a result of that people went to bars and clubs and drank copious amounts of alcohol to drown their sorrows, to drown the difficulties in life. And they came out with drug addictions, with alcohol, alcoholism, but 
because that was the only way they felt safe and secure, and that was the only way for them to connect with community, they continued to do it, and that perpetuated. And still today, in some aspects of the world, that still continues. But really, if you look at it from a, you know, a psychological perspective or a sociological perspective, um, these are these are reactions to the strains that come out as a result of being a gay person or a, or a lesbian or a transsexual person uh, or a queer person. And you suppress those insecurities, those behaviours that you don't think people desire or people want to prescribe to because it goes against the social norms that we dictate in our upbringing. Um, and then you drink alcohol, you take drugs, you participate in... Um, risky sexual behaviour and all these things or you self-harm to suppress those emotions continually and um, pervasively. And that then affects all sorts of parts of your life. You can't get a job because you, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't go to work because you're drunk half the time. You can't form healthy relationships with people because you don't know where to find them. You don't know how to do all of these things that only really allow you to go back and commit crime. And it's this continual revolving door, the cycle of I'm going to go commit crime because it's the only way I know how to do. There's this theory, it's called retreatism. And people who take drugs and alcohol tend to retreat to the, the underground economy to try and feel connection because they've lost their family, they've lost other aspects of their healthy life that they retreat back to it. And I think that's a really great way to capture how risk-taking behaviour, sexuality and criminality kind of correlate. Um, and I think that's really sad. But when you look at the policy responses or the intervention or the clinical intervention responses to these problems, there's none. There's absolutely none. As I said, this support group is the only thing that currently happens for this space. And is that enough? No, it's not. But it's a great step. But what I'd really like to see is more policy, more intervention, you know, um, I, I mean, you know, if you look at the link between um, Indigenous Australians and LGBT communities, the rate of recidivism and reoffending, and the, the social factors that cause this are actually very similar. And of course, I understand why, why, why you know Indigenous populations receive so much support, but I think we can also translate that to the LGBT community. But at the moment, there's none, and I think that's the way to go. And being so low in support and everything, would you relate that back to? I guess, studies and, yeah. and, and money getting poured into, like, the research? Absolutely. There's very little research. And, in fact, you know, I'm currently writing research about um, LGBT and domestic family violence. And there's very little research uh, talk that talks about domestic family violence perpetration, which is so... It's such a big ticket item at the moment, you know, for, for the feminist movement. But for the LGBT community, there's very little research funded into it. And I think the primary reason is... It's, it's relatively new, but also the LGBT community, once again, is hidden in this, um, this conversation. I mean, for example, when you look at the most recent landmark um, Victorian uh, Royal Commission into um, Family Violence, persistently the LGBT community kept saying, why are we not part of this? Why are we not, so, why are we not as salient as women are when we really are in the same boat you know, we've been consistently, pervasively um, harassed and, and we, the violence is so um, high within our populations. Um, and I think that comes down to a lack of research, a lack of funding for these research that then drives policy and government policy. But I think if we funnel and provide some research, some understanding as to the causation, the perpetration, the victimisation of 
for example, domestic family violence from the LGBT communities or just a broader, broader LGBT conversation that can then translate to social movement and government action and so forth. But I think we have to get back to our roots and let's study it, let's understand it, let's talk about it, let's create policy. Mm. And, and it sounds like, yeah, you know, you need to keep amplifying that voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Maybe it's your voice. I'm feeling, <laughs> it, I'm feeling it might be your voice there now. Um, going back to yourself. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you're, you know, in, in, in prison yeah. um, as well. What are you learning about yourself? And I'm really interested in how you ended up here. Yeah. Um, and how you were, you know, fulfilling, trying to fulfill your lifestyle or the perception of your lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, more so. Um, what do you look back on that now? And, you, and, you, and do, you, do you, like, I'm interested here. When you look back on that now, do you see, what was I, what was I doing? There was no was, value. I mean, yeah, yeah. Can, can you, the can first you, thing I'm going to say. Yeah, can you look <laughs> at it now and go, what was I thinking? But you can understand it. Like, you know, at that time where you were. Yes. But now, um, being a little bit more wiser, a little bit more, you know, older and, and having time to reflect, do you see that and go, what was going on there? Like, Absolutely. What, why, and, and, and the second part of it is like, what have you learned? What, what other stuff have you been learning about yourself while you've been incarcerated? Yeah. For me, I think when I think about it, I understand why I was doing it. I, I get it. You know, I completely understand it. But now when I sort of look back retrospectively, there was really no value to my life. I was just living, prodding along, but there was, I had no sense of purpose and meaning. And I think in the oddest way possible, prison gave me that. that and I don't think anyone that. could ever say <laughs> that I went to prison and found my sense of value, purpose and meaning. But prison gave me that. Yeah. In saying that, I don't think this would have been possible if I wasn't at Ravenhall, where you know um, the Inside Out Exchange program um, existed, where I was able to have the opportunity to explore how I fitted into this kind of um, pathway. Um, but when I really look back in my life, I, I, I don't regret it, because obviously it's given me this, this very odd way of finding a future. But at the same time, I, you feel the sort of... Um, you feel that, I can't explain it, you feel this, this emotion that it's so wrong and it's so, it was so stupid and, and cowardly. Um, but at the same time, coming into prison, I think I've learned that I'm a lot more patient. I have a lot more motivation to, to do what I need to do. I have a lot more empathy than I thought I did. And I certainly allowed me to see different perspectives of how life can, can look like. When you grow up in a family that is so motivated that you know they all went to uni and had amazing professional careers, you're sort of on this singular pathway to what life needs to look like. You need to get a university, get a job, have a family and succeed. That, that's really the basic ingredients of a successful life or a good life rather. But coming into prison, those goals have certainly changed. Those perceptions of what life needs to look like has changed dramatically. And I've been able to gain that through the men in, in prison. To learning from their stories, what, what, what makes them tick, what makes them excited, but also to see that they've gone through some you know, really deep crap and really some hard stuff that I would have never thought people went through, especially in a place like Australia. But you learn that they do and they have, and you feel more understanding. The reason why they can't write isn't because they were lazy at school. It's probably because they didn't go to school because they were too busy doing other things because no one fed them. Their mums were too high, too busy getting high on drugs or getting drunk. Whatever these reasons were, and you feel a lot more understanding as to why that person can't write or read or can't speak articulately. 
but on the outside and not coming to prison, I would have thought, that guy's just an idiot. <laughs> yeah. What a lazy prick. Yeah. But coming into prison, that's completely changed my thinking. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of really think about is when I think of intelligence prior to prison, I think of going to uni, getting a really great ATAR or getting a really great score in university and getting high distinctions. Coming into prison, for me, intelligence is different. You know, this, this, this assumption or this kind of um, perception of what intelligence looks like prior to prison is so different. It's so culturally loaded, you know, from based on what we're taught. But coming here for me, intelligence can look like, can, can, can manifest and can become in different ways. And men here have a lot of intelligence, just in different ways that we don't tend to see as being intelligent or valuable in community. And I think that's the biggest lesson I learned that I can, I would have never learned or never come across had I not come to prison. Well said. It's like um, it's like you've just gained what, what I, what's referred to as worldviews. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you see things through other people's eyes. You don't yeah. judge. You you put themself you put yourself in their in the, in the views of what how they go about and what their lives have been like. Yeah. And instead of instead of saying, well, you you like that because it is, you're not. You kind of understand what's got them to that that place. Absolutely. Um, and then you kind of yeah, you can you can have empathy towards that. Absolutely. It's really well said. Um, and it's fascinating insight. Thank you. You know that you have been on this kind of I use the word journey, but like you've you you know you've learned all this about yourself. Mm. But unfortunately, you've learned it in prison. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, look, yeah. I, I, you took the hard road. You took the I very took the hard, hard road. You took the very hard road. But it, there's something. In, there's something in it, isn't it? Like that. And um, that's really gonna that, that that our listeners and hopefully people listening to this podcast will will get that. You know, um, when people come to prison and all that, it's not. It is not a great place. Yes, and and there's reasons why they've ended up here as well. But it doesn't have to be. It can be what you make of it, and it, for yourself meaning that you can get what you want from it in different ways. So, and it sounds like you've done that. And, and that's exactly it for me. And, and you used the word, unfortunately, I came to prison. But, um, you know, I, I, I'll disagree with you on there because I, I don't think it's unfortunate at all. I think that we think of prison as a really bad and, and a horrible place, but we don't have to think about it as a really bad and horrible place. It can be a learning experience, a place of growth, and it can be a fortunate place to end up in. I know that sounds really odd for most people listening <laughs> right no, now. No, it doesn't. You're right. You're <laughs> yeah. right. But it doesn't have to be this horrible conception in our mind because it isn't. Yeah. Um, it can be a place where people can grow and learn. It can be a place where people can learn skills that can, can, that, that can in turn be used in our community to further our community, to further our society. And I think we have to start there, mm. is to change that language. And I really don't... I mean, look, I, I would rather be out, I'll be honest... But I don't see my experience as being unfortunate. And I think I'd really love the listeners out there to, to understand and reconceptualize that idea of prison in their mind as a place of punishment because it doesn't have to be a place of punishment. I think that's great. I think you're so right. You're, you know, it's well, really well said. Um, so how long more, like, it, really interested in, in your prison, like, how, what are you looking at um, lengthwise of, you know, um, what you're facing time-wise in prison? And really interested to see, you know, you spoke a little bit about it, but, you know, what's your future aspirations of, yeah. you know, building towards that and, and also um, hopefully back into the community? So um, I'm still in remand and yeah. because of COVID-19, everything's just been slower in the courts. Yeah. Um, but in saying that, uh, my release date shouldn't be too far. Um, sometime this year, possibly, maybe early next year. So that would take me to somewhere around the two-year mark of being in prison, which I think is 
enough, <laughs> you know, to learn and, and, and to grow and to kind of invest. Done um, enough growing. Well, you yeah. done enough growing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do an extra, an extra course? And no, oh, no, no, an extra. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of aspiration, you know, currently I'm, I'm, I'm um, working towards a degree in, 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 in learning about the criminal justice system and sociology. And I'd really love for the future to take the lived experience as an LGBT person um, being in prison and taking that into the world of academia and doing research and starting that movement and starting that conversation and advocating for all these things that I learned whilst being in prison and kind of you know, moulding the sort of theoretical perspectives I've learned from uni that I'm doing now and the lived experience that I experienced myself and putting that together. And I think that will really um, provide me a voice and give me a, a, an insider platform um, to to further my work that I've been doing here at Ravenhall. And certainly, you know, that, that that's an interest point of mine, is to go into academia, teach the future practitioners of the criminal justice system to be more kind, to be more compassionate, to have a much more, to have a worldview that I gained, um, that, you know, I, I gained through being in prison with the hope that the prison system for them or the criminal justice system broadly for them can be humanised, and I think that's something that we don't do enough of, um, and that's really my goal, and the hope to, you know, advocate for intervention-specific um, initiatives um, for the LGBT community in prison, post-release, and prevention mechanisms that prevents LGBT people from being, you know, intertwined with the criminal justice system in the first place. But that requires research, and that requires work, and that's where I think I'm going to exert my energies into. Well. You can say, you know, you can honestly say that um, the LGBT people in the in the community and in in uh, custodial um, are very kind of lucky to have such a <laughs> such a passionate advocate, yeah. but someone that's got really, you know, that's taken a step back and really can see how you can make change. I've got no doubt, you know, that you're going to get to where you need to go. Thank um, you. Now it's always always such a pleasure speaking to you, and you. Uh, we always learn so much. I know Mary probably the same. <laughs> I, I could talk to you all day because you've always learned so <laughs> much you. from you and you're always so so giving with that as well. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. And um, and I, 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 I can see, you know, um, I can see in the future, you know, crossing paths with you in the community or seeing your name somewhere around something or, or you know, sitting in a, in a forum or a conference and seeing you speak at it because, you know, you really, yeah, you really do have everything that it takes to be that 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 voice of that movement. So yeah, I wish you nothing but the best with Thank it. And, you. and, I, and I'm, I'm going to be a very keen um, spectator. Thank you. I mean, if I if I could, you know, say one thing to your to your listeners, I think if they can do one thing whilst listening to this podcast, um, is to just have an open mind. Just open your mind and give me a minute of your time, and maybe I might change your perspective. Um, and in, in saying that, everyone else, you know, that, that's speaking in this podcast. Um, and I think they'll come out of that minute um, with a changed perspective, a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, you know, and, um, and well done on your journey. You know, there's, you. There's, there's a few ways you can go about prison. And oh, yes. You, and, uh, <laughs> and I think you've done, you've done a really good job. Thank so you. Um, just continue doing the work you're doing. Thanks I know, very much. You don't need me to say that, but, uh, <laughs> but you're doing a great job. Um, and really, yeah, leading the way uh, for the community in here. So, um, 
Thank you so much for coming on the Thanks show very today. Much. Thank you. You don't get off. You don't get off that easy, though. I got one oh. question that I asked. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. almost no, got away with it. I always got away with it. I nearly forget. We haven't recorded in a while. That's why. <laughs> um, but I asked everyone to come in, and uh, really interested to get your answer on this one. So, when you were um, when you were a kid, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> right. So I'm not too far from it, am I? No. Well, <laughs> just on the other side. Uh, just for anyone to know, you've rocked in with two folders. Yeah. <laughs> when you came into the window, I said, Mark, we're in for it today. He's got two folders. He's researched. He's ready to go. But go on. Yeah, I want to be a lawyer, um, either a musician or a lawyer. Um, so very polar opposites. Um, but I, I don't think I ended up too far from law. Um, no. Somewhere in the law, just on the wrong side of it. <laughs> you're in law on the wrong side, but I think you're trying to move to the other side. So yeah. you're okay. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Just yeah. getting the work experience. Just up. getting the work experience, That's yes. <laughs> well, thanks again, mate. Look, we um, really appreciate your time. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to probably speaking to you again at some stage. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Noah. Thank If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson. This podcast has been approved by Corrections Victoria and Geo Australia.